0: I am certainly glad to see you here today. We have been studying the book of Colossians. And the study we're going to do today is actually on the book of Philemon. Now you might say, why in the middle of studying Colossians would we go over and read the book of Philemon? I want to give you a little background and history on it. And we don't have time to read the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon and Acts chapters 19 through 26 today. But that's where you're going to find this history that we're going to talk about. Now, in the time that that uh, we're talking about here, the Apostle Paul has written some letters. He's written four letters. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians. He wrote the letter to the Colossians. He wrote the letter to the Laodiceans, which we don't have today. It doesn't exist anymore. And he wrote this letter, this little personal letter, to an individual man by the name of Philemon. Now, Philemon lives in Colossae, and the church meets the church in Colossae, meets in the home of Philemon. Now, here's a. have got a map up here, and I'm not sure how easy it's going to be for you to see this, but here's Ephesus right here. It's right on the coast. And the Apostle Paul had come to Ephesus, and he had begun to do some evangelistic work in Ephesus on his second missionary journey. And he stayed in Ephesus two or three years. He stayed a long time, and he set up shop, you might say, in a high school, rented a room in this school, and there every day he preached in this school, and he taught the gospel here at this school. And he stayed there for, like I said, day after day, week after week, month after month. It was so successful that during that period of time, the Bible says that all the area of Asia Minor heard the gospel. Wouldn't that be neat? to have an evangelistic outreach that was that successful. That's what he did. During this period of time, this guy named Philemon with his wife Aphia and his son Archippus, who live in Colossae, come down to Ephesus. Now Colossae was way up here, about a hundred miles inland from Ephesus. And Colossae was part of three cities. Yancey talked to us about this a few weeks ago. There was Laodicea and Hierapolis... And Colossians. if you're familiar with your Bible, you've heard all of those, because the book of Colossians was to the church at Colossae that met in Philemon's home. The Laodicean church, there was a church there. In the end of the book of Colossians, he says, you let them read your letter that I've written you, and you read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans. So it's talked about in the Bible. And Hierapolis is talked about in the book of Revelation. And there were churches in these towns. And there were three cities that were very close together, kind of a tri-city area. Primarily, the ch- the town of Colossae was, as best I can tell from history, it was a wealthy suburb area where the wealthy business people lived. If you owned a business and you had a big Deion Sanders style house, you probably lived in Colossae. He was a very successful capable man this guy Philemon was But a part of their world was slavery Now I know in America when we think of slavery we think everybody my age and older thinks of the movie roots and with Kunta Kinte chained to the post while they were beating him and all Slavery in the Roman Empire was very different than what we think of as slavery in America Slavery in the Roman Empire, one out of every three people in the Roman Empire was a slave. Seventy million slaves. And when you've got that many slaves, one out of every three people, that changes the dynamics of your whole world, and slavery is just a cultural part of the way things work in the world. Most of the slaves in the Roman Empire were not mistreated. Now, yes, there were slaves in the galleys and slaves that were mistreated. But most of the slaves in the Roman Empire were what we call white and blue-collar workers today. If you needed a laborer, you bought one. And he worked and labored for you in your fields. But if you needed an accountant for your business, you bought an accountant or two or three. You needed a business manager, you bought a business manager. You needed a doctor for your family, if you were wealthy, you bought a doctor. For your family. You see, these men and women who were very professional in our culture were slaves, most of them, for the very wealthy in the Roman Empire. Now, when that's the case, you treat your slaves. If, if it's your doctor who's your slave, you're not going to chain him to a post and beat him. You're going to treat him pretty good because he takes care of you, you see. But one thing about the Roman Empire and slavery in the Roman Empire was not only did they generally treat their slaves better, there were laws protecting slaves, but slaves were also a different class. Now in America, we've got wealthy people and poor people, but there's kind of an intermixture. Last night we were at Walmart. And we ran across a a friend of ours, a lady that we haven't seen in quite a while. Her daughter, Reagan, we saw Reagan and Miss Jones yesterday. Her daughter was uh, a friend of Jerrica's back years ago. They make more money than everybody I know put together just about. I mean, her dad owns a company that's sold on NASDAQ. and They just have lots and lots of money. But you know what? We just stood there and visited, and there was no... Mm, you know, those are we didn't bow our heads when we walked. I mean, the fact that we're poor people and they're not. In America, we have this mixture, but it's different in cultures where there's a caste system or where there are these levels of society. In the Roman Empire, it was very much that way. If you were a slave, you had certain rights legally. However, if you were a slave, you were not considered a person like other people. You were considered a possession. In fact, you can find insurance lists. And yes, they had insurance in the Roman Empire. And you can find insurance lists and they would list first all the free men in the household and citizens of Rome. And then they would list the, all the different... They'd list all their animals and different things. But they had a category they called living machines. And in that they would include donkeys and oxen and slaves. You see, slaves weren't considered people in the same sense that you and I consider everyone people. Now, the interesting thing about that is this letter from Philemon, or from Paul to Philemon, is about a slave. And what's happened is there is a guy named Onesimus, this slave, his master is converted. And this slave, his name actually, the word Onesimus, means useful. Now, that's the kind of guy I'd like to buy as a slave, right? Useful. But this guy was anything but useful. He was a sorry, useless slave. Paul says as much in the letter. He says, I know he used to be useless to you, but he's not anymore. Jesus turned him into what his name really was. But he was a useless slave. He was the kind of employee you've seen them, that works just enough to keep from getting fired. You know, they do just enough to keep from being the one that's fired and kicked out. He did just enough to manage, just enough to exist. But he had a desire to get away. He didn't want to be a slave. He thought, you know, there's something more than this. There's a world out there that I was meant to be more than a slave. I wasn't meant just to be a slave. He had a dream of getting away. Now, in the Roman Empire, as I said, you were protected as a slave. But one thing's true, if there are three people and one of them is a slave, the other two are afraid of the one that's a slave. Because you see, if one slave could rise up and organize the slaves in a rebellion... That's one third of the population, they'd overthrow the Roman Empire in a heartbeat. So it was a very serious crime in the Roman Empire if you were slave to run away. Crime number one was desertion in the army. You just died for that, period. That's the end. The slave number two, or crime number two, was run away as a slave. The law said in the Roman Empire, if you ran away as a slave, when they caught you, they branded your forehead with their version of an F. Can you imagine a brand in your forehead? You know what the F stood for it was fugitive. It meant they tried to run and they didn't get away. Now you know why they would do that, don't you? Say you're a slave and you're thinking about running away and you go down to the market with your master and walks by walks a guy and he's got a big old red whelpy burned F on his forehead. That'd make you think twice about running away, wouldn't it? Number two, your legal protections were removed. Your slave could beat you. Your slave could... Not your slave could beat you, you could beat your slave. (laughs) His legal protection, your master could beat you if you were a slave. Your master could crucify you if he wanted to. He could do anything to you he wanted if you ran away. That removed your legal protection. So, a couple of things we can come to this story knowing about... Is you've got this wealthy business owner who's been converted to Christianity. He's got these slaves. I have no doubt he probably made his slaves come to church because Christianity had a different view of slavery than the Roman Empire did. And he wanted, no doubt, this young slave to know about Jesus and to be converted. This slave, though, Onesimus, decides to run away. He decides it's worth the risk. He's going to take whatever risk there is and he's going to run. So he runs. And he runs to, whoa, I guess I don't have it on here. Oh yeah, there it is. Over there, Rome. He runs to Rome. Now from here to there, that's a long way. 1,300 miles. And you know how you have to go? You don't go to Southwest Airlines. Up on a plane. You gotta walk. Not only do you have to walk, you gotta hide as you're going. You know why he went to Rome? He went to Rome because that was Hollywood of the Roman Empire. I mean, if you wanted to get away, it was New here in America, it's New York City or Hollywood, right? That was the New York City or the Hollywood of that time, time of the world. Now, in the meantime, the Apostle Paul has moved on from his work in Ephesus and he's gone down to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, the apostle Paul was arrested. And he was arrested and taken captive and he was held in jail for a while and then he appeared before different kings, Festus and Agrippa, and he finally appealed to Caesar and they put Paul on a boat and Paul goes on the boat, there's a shipwreck and all, but he ends up over here in Rome under arrest waiting to give his defense before Caesar. Now, he was a Roman citizen, so he had the right to appeal to Caesar. When Paul goes in front of Caesar, Paul, it's Nero he's going to go in front of. And he's going to tell Nero the gospel of Jesus Christ. But while he's there, he's under house arrest, and he had some freedom, evidently, as a Roman citizen under house arrest. Philemon, slave Onesimus, I believe, cleaned out the safe, took as much money with him as he could, and I believe that's indicated in, in the story, he gets all the way over to Rome. And you know what he found when he got to Rome? He found the same thing you would find if you ran away and went to Hollywood. Runaways on every corner. It's where everybody wanted to go. You know how many would-be movie stars there are for every movie star? You know how many would-be musicians there are in Nashville for every success? And that's what he found in Rome. There were runaway slaves everywhere in the city of Rome. Now, we don't know the details of what happened in his life once we got here. What we do know is this, he met Paul. Now, I don't know if Onesimus was in this house of Philemon, and Philemon and Naphia and Archippus were always talking about brother Paul, brother Paul, brother Paul. And he got there and he heard about brother Paul, and he goes, well, at least I can go to him. I don't know. I do know this, he meets up with Paul, and Paul teaches him the gospel, and He's converted. And he becomes a Christian. And he begins, as a servant, which he's always been, he begins to serve Paul when Paul's under house arrest. And he takes care of the needs of Paul and he meets Paul. And Paul says, You know what? He has become my right hand man. But the day comes when he tells Onesimus, He says, You need to go home. You're not my slave. I don't have the right to keep you. You belong to Philemon. You need to go home. I want you to take Tychicus and I've written four letters. Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae, and here's a letter to Philemon. And I want you to take these and go home. Now the letter to Philemon basically says this. I'm sending your slave back to you. I've converted him. He's useful now, and I want to ask you to forgive him and welcome him home. Now, when I hear that letter, I go, okay, no big deal, right? I want you to know it was a big deal. It was a very big deal to forgive this man, Onesimus. The Apostle Paul says that I want you to forgive this guy. I want you for a moment just to imagine that you are Philemon. And you're sitting there in your robe drinking your orange juice or your coffee in the morning, getting ready for worship service that's going to be at your house here in a little while. And you hear a knock on the door. And you get up and you go over to the door. And you open that door and there on the porch stands that old sorry runaway slave that took your money and ran. And he's standing there on your porch. Are you going to forgive him? First thing you're going is, what are you doing here? (laughs) You crazy? Do you know what I've got to do now? Before you can say a word, He hands you a letter. And you break open that letter and you look. And that letter is from the Apostle who converted you to Jesus Christ. And that letter says, I'm not going to command you to, but I'm going to ask you to forgive this guy. Now there are several things that have to come to your mind. Reasons that you shouldn't forgive this guy. Number one, you know what's already happened down in slaves' quarters? Somebody saw Philemon walking up. I mean Onesimus. Somebody saw Onesimus when he was coming back. They're already talking. Hey, Onesimus is back. I saw him. He's on the porch. I saw him out front. It's Onesimus. Now you have to realize this guy's trying to run a business. He's got all these slaves at work for him. If you just forgive Onesimus, you know what every young slave is going to think? Dude, when I want a vacation to Rome, I just clean out the safe and run to Rome, and then I come back. Master will forgive me. He's got to. He's a Christian. I mean, do you know what that's going to do to his business? His slaves are not going to do what He tells them to do anymore. If He just forgives this guy, there will be no consequences. And you know as well as I do, if there's no consequences, people won't do what they're supposed to do. Right? We know that, don't we? And if you just forgive them and remove the consequences, they're not going to do what they're supposed to do. It's going to destroy his business. You can't do that. Good grief. This isn't just a personal matter. This affects a lot of stuff. If he loses his business, loses his home, the church doesn't have anywhere to meet. On top of that, this church in this wealthy suburban area is full of slave owners. If you forgive your slave, what's that say about me? If Kent forgives his slaves, does that mean now I've got to forgive mine? besides these things these guys they're not even people they're living machines you don't forgive machines it'd be like me saying my car broke down but i forgave it you don't forgive your car for breaking down it's just it just serves you right you don't forgive that you want to talk about pressure from the brethren philemon you can't do this If you forgive your slaves, then all my slaves are going to think they can steal from me and run away. You can't do that. Do you know what that's going to do to the fabric of the entire Roman society if we start doing this? It's going to destroy us. Besides, Philemon, you know what our mission is? Do you know what Jesus wants us to do? He wants us to convert people evangelism in Colossae. He wants us to convert people. How are we going to go and tell our friends and our neighbors, yeah, become a Christian, and then you have to forgive your slaves? They're machines. They already think we're crazy. It's hard enough to preach Jesus in this community. You know, when I was doing some research for this, I found a letter written back in like the 100s by somebody about Christians. And he says this, he says, these Christians are so crazy, they love one another before they've even met. That love, that compassion was not looked on highly in the Roman Empire. They didn't think more of you if you were compassionate and loving. It's hard enough to convince people to be there, much less telling us we've got to forgive these living machines, these slaves. You can't do that. And then, on top of all of that, he doesn't command Philemon to forgive. Verse 8, he said, Though I might be much bold to enjoin thee that which is fitting... Now, that's old King James because that's what I memorized it in. Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he says there? He says, now Philemon, I could command you to forgive this guy, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to ask you to forgive him. Being an old man in prison, (laughs) I'm just going to ask you to forgive him. Now you see what Paul did with that? is he took away the out that Philemon had. Because all these other reasons, all of these other things, Philemon could go to the other members of the church and he could go, guys, I'm with you. But the apostle said, what can I do? He's an apostle. I have to do what he says. I agree, I shouldn't, but what can I do? But he didn't do that. You know what he did? He put the monkey square on the back of Philemon. If you're going to forgive Him, it's because you say it's the right thing to do and I'm going to forgive Him. It's what God wants me to do and I'm going to forgive Him. That's a different thing. You know, sometimes I think maybe we do our children a misservice by making all the decisions for them at times. And I've probably erred in that way sometimes. you got to make your own decisions to grow up. And that's what Paul's telling Philemon to do. You've got to grow up as a Christian. You can't stay like this. Nay, want wants him to forgive. You know, with all this in mind, it's a little surprising to me that Philemon would actually forgive. You know, nobody is going to expect him to. Everyone in the church is going to tell him, no, you don't need to forgive that. If I was you, I wouldn't forgive that. He doesn't have to. And yet he still chooses to. You know, that's why I have the title of this sermon is a bit too much. He's just asking for Paul. Paul is asking Philemon to love Onesimus... Just a bit too much. Just a bit more. Paul talks about this in Thessalonians, and he says this, "...the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another." He says, I want your love for each other to increase. Now, you know what that word increase is? It's a banker's term. It means to gain interest. So if I put my money in the bank, it grows because it gets interest. Just a little bit right now. But it gets some interest, and it grows. He says, I want your love to grow. Is your love growing for other Christians? Do you love other Christians more than you used to? I hope so. God wants you to. He wants your love to grow. But He says, I also want it. This is the interesting word to me. To abound. You know what abound means? Abound is an interesting word. Abound means to have too much of. Abound means to have more of than you can possibly use. You know what abound is? Abound is Thanksgiving dinner. When you get to the house and they've got food all over the table, and you sit and you eat and everybody else eats just as much as they can eat, and then you scoot back and you're full... And there's still food all over the table. That's abound. He says, I want you to have too much love. I want your love to be so much that it doesn't make any sense. It's crazy to love people that much. It's just unreasonable to love people that much. That's the way I want you to love. He says, I want you to love. It's like if you had a glass of water sitting here and you pour water in it till it gets to the top and then you keep pouring water in it, and it just flows over the edges and all over the table. He says, that's the kind of love I want you to have. And that's what he's asking Philemon to do for Onesimus. He's asking him to have the kind of love that's just overwhelming, that just makes no sense to people who aren't Christians, who don't understand that kind of love. Do you have that kind of love for each other? Do you love that way? Your husband or your wife? You love your kids like that? Do you love your parents that way? Do you love the other people who sit in this building with you on Sundays that way? That's what God calls us to. He says, Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. He wrote this to the church at Ephesus. I believe part of the reason this is in there is because he knew what he had written to Philemon. And he knew the nuclear bomb that that was going to be in that part of the Christian world. And guess where Onesimus and Tychicus land first when they're taking these letters? They land in Ephesus because that's the seaport. And they deliver this letter to the church in Ephesus before they go on. And he says, There's going to be a message about forgiveness here, and it's going to rock this world. And I need to tell, he tells Colossi, he tells Ephesus, and I have no doubt he told Laodicea the same thing about forgiveness. He says, I want you to forgive one another just like God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How did God forgive you? Are you forgiven by God? You say, yes, I am forgiven by God. God loves me. He forgave me. How did He do that? How did God forgive you for Christ's sake? Let me show you a diagram that I believe helps understand this. Here's the sinner, here's you, and here's God. You commit a sin, or they commit a sin, and God's love, the way God forgives you, is instead of His wrath coming out toward the sinner... God pours that wrath out on Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and Jesus died. You see, God forgives you and I because Jesus died. That's the way we forgive. He says, I want you to forgive the same way. You know why? Because sin is not just vertical, but sin is also horizontal. Because if that sinner did something to you, God's wrath is on them for what they did. But guess who else's wrath is on them? You know who else's wrath is on them. Your wrath is on them for what they did to you, right? So, what happens when somebody sins against me. My wrath is on them. And you know what? There's a little voice in my head that says, somebody's got to pay for that. Somebody's got to pay. You can't just ignore it. You can't just push it away. You can't just let it go away. Somebody's got to pay. The problem with that sense of justice is this. When I commit a sin, somebody's got to pay. Who's that somebody? You know, when you commit a sin, it's not hard for me to figure out who needs to pay for that sin. (laughs) Right? The same thing's true of you when I commit a sin. It's pretty easy for you to tell who needs to pay for that sin. But if you'll notice, He says, forgive just like God forgave. Jesus Christ stands between my wrath and the sinner just like He does God's wrath and the sinner. Somebody says, but you don't understand what that did to me. No, but God does. What? Well, You know, they ought to be branded for what they did to me. Just like Onesimus should have been branded, right? I'll tell you, Jesus Christ was branded with a crown of thorns on His head for what happened to you. Yeah, but He ought to be beat for what He did. Yeah. And Jesus Christ was beaten. Well, the neighbor down the road would crucify Him for doing that. Yeah. And Jesus was crucified. You see, Jesus Christ paid for sin. And He didn't just pay for that kind of sin. He paid for this kind of sin. So I forgive people because Jesus Christ died to pay for that sin. How dare I say to God, well, I know the death of Jesus was good enough for you to forgive Him, but it's not good enough for me. How dare you? How dare I? You see, if I get rid of this cross right here and I take it away and I say, nope, that's not good enough to pay for your sin, guess who else's sin it doesn't pay for? doesn't pay for my sin. See, God is a God of justice. The Bible says He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. God doesn't just overlook your sin. He doesn't just overlook my sin. Jesus paid for my sin. And He paid for your sin. And when He does, He pays for sin. Not just vertical sin. And for me to claim that I want that forgiveness and I want that payment for mine, there's no way I can refuse to acknowledge that payment for someone else's. You know how God said it? God said it this way For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Talked to somebody one time about forgiveness. This person was very bitter. And it was obvious from their life and just their whole attitude about everything. They were bitter about things. And they'd had some bad stuff went on in their life. And as we visited, I I said, have you ever been really wronged? She said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I began to talk with her about forgiveness and about how important forgiveness is and what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. And she interrupted me and she said, oh, no, 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 wait. I forgave them. I forgave them. Don't, I forgave them. But I think about it every day. My friends, that's not forgiveness. That's not the way God forgives. Somebody says, You don't understand. You can stand up there and preach, but you don't know how bad it hurt. You don't understand what it's like. I will tell you, I do understand what it's like to be hurt terribly. And I also will tell you that it's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of obeying. It's a matter of doing what God said. You know, one of the reasons I believe there's a problem with forgiveness in our culture and in the church is people feel like to forgive, that means you go hug them and pat them on the back and say, oh, that's okay. It's not okay. What they did was sin. It's not fine. Forgiveness doesn't mean that when you see them, you get warm fuzzies and want to run over and give them a hug. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness in the Bible is this. It's a promise. And it's a promise that involves three things. Number one, it's a, it involves, I won't bring it up to you anymore. It's not forgiveness. When you keep bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up, that's not forgiveness. God doesn't forgive you that way, does He? You remember some of the stuff you've done, don't you? You know what you've done. God doesn't forgive you and go, Yeah, I forgave you, but boy, I tell you what, I remember when you were in college. God never says that to me. He says, I will remember their sin against them no more forever. He doesn't keep bringing that up. You can do that. You can just never mention it again to the person who wronged you, can't you? You can do that. Oh boy, that would be hard. I know. But you can do it. You know, what else is involved in that process is this. I'm not going to bring it up to other people anymore. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to tell you, hey, listen. I'll tell you what. I forgave him, but... (laughs) You know what old Jeremy did to me? (laughs) I forgave him, but you know what he did? That's not the way God forgives. I want you to know there's not a person in this building that I haven't prayed for. At some time or another, I've prayed for you. And I want you to know God did not tell me what you did. God did not answer me and go, Well, listen, I forgave them and all, but they did this. That's not the way God forgives. Don't tell anybody. Don't talk about it to other people. That's not forgiveness. The last part of this promise... Is I won't stew on it in my own mind. I won't bring it up to me anymore. And I want to tell you, granted, this is the hardest piece of it all, the most difficult piece of the pie, is right here. Don't bring it up anymore in your own mind. You might say, "Well, I can't stop thinking about it. I just think about it all the time. I can't stop my mind from thinking it." You can. We talked about that last week or week before last. How you can control what you think. It may be hard. You may have to push it out of your mind sixty times in sixty seconds, but if you'll do that, the next minute you'll only have to push it out fifty-nine times in sixty seconds. And it may take you a week or a month, but if you'll keep every time that thought comes into your mind, just push it out. I'm not thinking about that. I'm not thinking about that. You just push that out and push it out and push it out. God doesn't look down at you and go, Man, I tell you what, Jesus forgave you, but. That's not God's forgiveness for you. And that's not the way you forgive somebody else. You forgive by not stewing on it in your mind, not bringing it up to other people, and not bringing it up to them anymore. That's a promise. And you can do that. Somebody says, well, do I have to forget that it happened? You probably can't forget that it happened. What you can do is what God did. He said, I will remember your sin against you no more forever. doesn't say, I forgot it happened. He says, I don't remember it against you. I don't hold it against you anymore. It doesn't negatively affect our relationship anymore. It's not a broken relationship because of what you did. That's a bit too much, isn't it? That's a big thing for God to ask of you and I. But I'll tell you this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about forgiveness. In virtually every sermon that Jesus preached, He talked about forgiveness. In the prayer, the model prayer that Jesus prayed, He talked about forgiveness. And He said... After the prayer, the only thing in the prayer he commented on was the forgiveness. Remember, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And after the prayer, he said this, because if you won't forgive your debtors, God won't forgive you. And I believe that's because if you refuse to forgive your debtors, what you're saying is the death of Jesus isn't good enough for sin. And if it's not good enough for sin, it won't cover you. Now, I know that's, that's a tall order. It's a very, very difficult thing. But I want to close by reminding you of what happened when Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, on one occasion when Jesus was preaching, there were thousands, there were 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children. And they were all around and they were hungry. And some of the disciples, Nathaniel comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, <laughs> you've got to send these people away. Send them home so they can go get something to eat. And he says, well, how much money do we have? And Nathaniel goes, we don't have near enough money to take care of feeding all these people. He says, have everybody sit down. So they tell everyone to sit down. Now I want you to imagine as we tell this story that you are Nathaniel. And you're there. And the Lord says, tell everybody to sit down. You do. And He says, do we have any food? And there's a little boy. And he's got five loaves and two fishes. Now... These aren't two big tuna fishes. I mean, it's a little boy's carrying. It's his lunch, you know. It's five little hard rolls and two fish. You'd get better appetizers at John's restaurant than this would be. And he's got this little dab of food. And Jesus says, "Bring it to me." And he gives thanks. And he takes the bread and he breaks it in pieces. He lines you and all the other apostles up here facing the crowd. And he comes by and he puts some bread and he puts a little bit of fish in your hand and he does this for peter and james and john and judas and all the other apostles and you're standing here looking at all these hungry people and you've got this little boy's bread and fish in your hand and jesus looks at you and he says go feed them are you kidding? <laughs> okay lord what's the point <laughs> make your point Go feed them. We don't do stuff like this. You do, Lord. (laughs) Go feed them. Okay. He's the Lord. So you go out and you grab your bread and you get a little crumb and you dab some fish juice on it and you give it to Jim. And you go to the next one and you go down the line and you give. And after a little bit, you start thinking, okay, enough of this game. And you start tearing off big pieces. Here, have two. Here, have three. And you you go down row after row after row. Have to go back to the front and give them some food. And go up row after row after row. And you start to realize you hold in your hand a piece of eternal bread. You could have fed millions with that bread, couldn't you? By the time you get fifty rows back, you've given away more bread than you could have ever carried. And when you come back up to the front, let's just assume that Andrew says, uh-uh, not me, I ain't going out in that hungry crowd with my little dab of food. They'll tear me apart. You walk back and you hold out your hand. How much food do you have? And Nathaniel, or Andrew holds out his. Who's got more? You both got the same. But you've given away baskets full. I believe love is that way. The Bible says that the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts. And the truth is, you don't have enough love to forgive. I don't have enough love to forgive. But you have the eternal love of God in your heart. And you can give that away or you can just hold on to it. And if you'll give it and you'll say, God told me to and I've got His love, I'll do that, your love will abound and you'll give away more love than you could have ever held. Than you could have ever... Grasped and held in your heart, you can have that kind of love because that's what God has given you. And you're giving away His forgiveness, not your own. Now, I know this in any crowd this size there's people that know exactly what shelf at home you've got Onesimus on. You know exactly who they are. As soon as you realized I was talking about forgiveness today, they came to your mind. And you don't, you don't want to forgive. I'm going to tell you, you can. Not only you can, you have to. You have no choice as a Christian. Forgive as God forgave you. If there's any way the church can help you in that, if you need to seek the forgiveness of God yourself, we do offer a song of invitation if you'll come to the front while we stand and sing.